well, I, uh, I, I know that, that you people came here to, to hear us do some movie reviews, but I gotta tell you, I, I, I'm not sure it's right in American the way digital noise does their, their thing. I, uh, I must protest. <laughs> What's the problem, Richard? The, the, the honourable gentleman has no experience reviewing films. In fact, I have final proof here that he's, in fact, he's a games reviewer and has come here under false pretenses. And I'm a girl. Does beer fix that? And I do a terrible Jimmy Stewart impression. You really shouldn't actually do impressions at all. Honestly. You're right. We should just start the show and drink some beer. Beer. Number one, engage. Sound of audience going crazy. And the crowd goes mild. The crowd goes mild. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're glad to be here and all, but I'm not promising I'm staying awake for the whole thing. Yes, this is Digital Noise with Chris and Richard. Hello. It's our week. And it'll yes. be our week again next week because Brian is off doing Brian-y things somewhere. Uh, we're, we're like the Fiesta Bowl of Digital Noise. Pretty really much. Oh, <laughs> Uh, Did I just say something really unpleasant about myself? I really, I know I made a football reference, but so pardon me. I know like that that's inside the locker rooms business, but I think it was a football reference. I'm I, not sure. You're asking the wrong guy. You're barking <laughs> up the wrong goalpost, there, buddy. I don't know. I, I try to get involved in those conversations. They're like, "Oh, you're talking about the game." I, I've heard some terms that I think are related to football, and the next thing I know, I'm commenting on golf or soccer or something. <laughs> like, oh, is that the wrong? Sorry. First point, soccer doesn't have wickets. I was KO'd in the first round of that football discussion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, let's get away from sports and into movies. But before we do that, let me tell you guys, we really appreciate all the help you've given us, especially you guys who've become subscribers now. Um, for as low as $2 a month, you can become a subscriber to oneofus.net and you get all sorts of benefits, the latest of which is a new weekly show that's out every Monday morning, and I mean early Monday morning, called The Breakfast Pub that's available only in the subscribers lounge on oneofus.net and the forums. And that is a weekly news roundup of myself and Brian Salisbury basically getting really drunk the night before and <laughs> giving you all the news of what happened that week uh, in an old sort of daily spillage sort of way uh there's lots of stuff, the spill yeah there's lots of uh commentaries that on here that you can only get through being a uh a subscriber and all sorts of cool stuff like that if you can't afford to do that at the very least it's christmas time there's amazon links all over our page here for digital noise and all over the site on various different things if you click on any of those links to buy that item we get a kickback but we also get a kickback if you just start your voyage of shopping on amazon through any of our links so you could click on the link today for say star trek uh, the Next Generation Season 7, and, you know, you get there and you're like, you know what, I'm not sure I actually want this. I'm going to buy a pair of boxing gloves instead. But as long as you started that voyage through our Star Trek link, we get a kickback off those boxing gloves. So please, start all your holiday shopping at oneofus.net. And also, don't forget that, uh, you know, a subscription, it is the gift that keeps on giving. 
It does indeed. It does indeed, because yeah, we do stupid things, and they end up in the forums. Yeah, and that's... and we will be doing, you know, there'll be more, in this coming year, there'll be more live stuff that's exclusively in there. There'll be videos. There'll be a whole bunch of stuff. More new shows coming in there. It'll be much, much, much more worth your hard-earned dollars, or not so hard-earned dollars. Or stolen dollars. Or Other people's stolen. dollars you've suddenly acquired. <laughs> exactly. If you're the leader of a communist uh, dictatorship, is that a thing? Yeah. I don't think there's many of them left, but let's say yeah. yes. Yeah. Like, let, if if you hold a role of influence in North Korea, just buy subscriptions for the entire nation. Sure, <laughs> but yes, do that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Kim Jong Il is our biggest uh, fan. Don't say that. No, no, no. We'll get in, <laughs> We'll suddenly get in trouble. We'll get like the, the the Korean fatwa that everybody else seems to get. No, no. He'll do like he did to that. Uh, is it that? South Korean director who he kidnapped and made and made him spend fifteen years making terrible films oh, in North right. Korea. Yeah, I don't want to go to North Korea and do podcasts. I do. Can you imagine? It's like now learn Korean. <laughs> what now? I can barely speak English. I know. Have you listened to this podcast? Have you listened to my accent? Barely suffering through this language. All right. Well, it's time to take a look and see what's come in the mailbox right now. Hey, Richard, why don't you go out there to the front yard and open the. You've got mail. Thank you, Torgo. Aw, oh, he's so sweet handing the oh, mail no. like that. Oh, no, sister looking much better. Well, let's sort through these right here. Bill, 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 Penthouse Magazine, Bill, uh, Catalog. Here we go. Uh, first question comes from Michael... Oh, let me make this bigger so I can actually read it. Again, an apology to our viewers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. Michael Peskett, who says, Hey guys, I was in a convention, a conversation with some American friends about movies recently, and the topic turned to foreign movies. It turned out most of them couldn't name a single Canadian movie director. Do you guys have any favorite Canadian movies or directors? Well, first off, to just say, it's not exactly a secret that like 90% of the comedians who are any good and have ever been any good at one point were from Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially <laughs> people who worked in improv. Yep. Like, you know that guy you love from Saturday Night Live? Not from New York. Nope. <laughs> Probably from Toronto or Montreal or someplace like that. Uh, some of those people have gotten into to, the higher levels of him. Like Harold Ramis, I believe, is uh, from Ontario, I think. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously he became a pretty well-known director. But if you're going to talk, like, the first thing that goes in my head is David Cronenberg, who, like, is the defining Canadian director for me. And this guy was actually making his movies in Canada through the Canadian film system, which is various sort of the government paying for your movie, financing your film, and uh, just made some of the most important, influential, amazing films in the genre of horror, and just period, ever. And I will throw out there a name which a lot of people won't know. James Cameron. Oh, who's that? Canadian. Canadian. Made these, made these, Canuck. Made these little, like, indie sci-fi things in the 80s. Uh, you know, did something yeah. with Ed Harris. I don't think anybody ever saw it. Um, yeah, Canadian. <laughs> Mary Harron. I shot Andy Warhol. Oh, okay. And our friends, the Soska Twins. Oh, okay. Yep. And also, a uh, fun group who you may not have heard of yet. Uh, if you see the completely gonzo... Um, uh, Manborg. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Astron 6 Collective, <laughs> who uh, make great... Like, they have the makings of being, like, a slightly crazier, less craven version of Troma. They, they're doing some really fun stuff. So, yeah, I mean, there's... there's I think there's a shit like... The, Adam Egoyan. Oh, yeah, 
I, I completely forgot. Yeah, lots of great movies. God, I haven't, seen, a, I haven't seen Exotica in years. I know. I need to go back and rewatch it. Yeah, I'm really shocked. Criterion never decided to release that one. It seems so it seems up like there. An obvious one for them to pick up. It really does. Yeah, Criterion. If you're listening, Exotica. Yeah, yeah. just saying. Yeah. Just saying. Uh, anyway, next question. So basically, question. yeah, you, it's like, oh. my, like some of the biggest this, directors are Canadian. Ivan Reitman, another one. Ivan Reitman. You, you yeah. could keep going. There's a lot. And I mean, I think he probably meant more people who worked within the Canadian system instead of going straight to Hollywood, in which case we've named Adam Agoyan and David Cronenberg, certainly. Yeah. M- maybe not so much Ramis and, and Reitman. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. A boot. Uh, Boyd C. Atkins the Fourth. That is a good name. Congrats. I, that is a good. That, that is, is a, a good that name. Is a fantastic yeah, name. Like, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. That is a, that is a styling name. He's like the bad frat guy in any given '80s comedy. <laughs> <laughs> you says, are James Spader, <laughs> right? Uh, he says, "Has there ever been a film that you've watched over and over, began to dissect, and eventually disliked the film in general?" Oh, you, you walk to the end of this plank first, because I'll follow you in a moment. Well, honestly. I'm never. I, I'm not one of those people that keeps going. Okay, I'm going to watch it again. Okay, I'm going to watch it again. I'm always like, I know that it's going to take something away from it by continuing to rewatch it. Of course it is. If nothing else, you're just getting bored despite your enthusiasm. Your mind's like, can we please do something else? I am not a three year old that needs to watch Frozen eighty times. <laughs> you know. Where- um. The, I will counter this with the worst experience is when you watch a film that you totally love. You've loved all your life, like you've put up on your top list, and you go, I'm going to get really stoned and watch this film. And then you do, and you're never really sure again. Makes you not sure if you want to watch it again after that, because you're not sure. Was the pot lying to you about all the inconsistencies and problems that you mm-hmm. never noticed before in that film? Or were, you, or were they there the whole time and you weren't seeing it and pot opened your, your mind to it? There's a couple movies I've never gone back and watched again because of having watched them stone. I'm like, I don't want to know. I'm going to pretend the stone thing didn't happen and just go with, oh, no, it's a great movie. Uh, that's like me and uh, the pilot, of, me and many, several friends and the pilot of Twin Peaks. Uh, let's just say there were some brownies involved. It was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> like, Is, are they and, ever uh, going to stop crying? It just, just got, <laughs> we just got the fear. Yeah. We just got the really bad fear. And then the fact that episode two has different colored title cards yeah and we all got really confused when we saw episode two we, and we didn't know why we were all really confused by this um i'm gonna walk out onto a plank and this is actually a little bit of a, a, a preview of something we'll be talking about later and i will say stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey mm. for the very simple reason that you watch it and you're kind of blown away by like this is you know up there with uh, the original Solaris for the time of just amazing special effects and like this real sense of this this really feels like it's space and then you go back and watch it and you go yeah this kind of feels like several stories lumped together and then you watch it again and you go this does not have a plot <laughs> this does this is just a bunch of random shit with some vague underlying concept it's very pretty it's very <laughs> well made yeah. but it doesn't it's like it it is it almost defies the concept of story to a level that I find extremely frustrating. I think and to the, the degree... And that Arthur C. Clarke found frustrating. In fact, he was asked about uh, what he thought of the uh, uh, thought of the film, and he went, oh, it was very lovely. I have no idea what happened. Yeah, he's he like, wrote the book and the story. I, he's like, I could have sworn I wrote this. And, I, and, and even he couldn't follow it. I mean, but that's, that's Stanley Kubrick right there for you, yeah. but, you know, who likes to take somebody else's book, no matter how good it is, and go, that's great, but I'm going to make a completely different version of it. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> the problem is he, took, he made a completely different version of it, and I think that it's so jarring 
when it shifts from one bit to another and then you know, it just kind of meanders. Yeah, I think Anthony Burgess oh. was equally pissed off about Clockwork Orange, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, but but I think he does a better... I think he actually has a... That has a narrative. That has... Right. Um, and a lot of it is, is by the fact the, that Malcolm the, McDowell is a way better and more charismatic actor than Keir Dulé, who is a fucking bump on a log. And again, <laughs> the more you watch it, the more you realise, like, Keir Dulé is not very good in that well, film. Well, I don't want to... I mean, we'll definitely be talking about 2001 and Kubrick stuff in a little bit. In but, a bit. but I'm with you 100% on 2001. Totally blew me away first time I saw it. Uh, every successive seeing of this film has made me like it less and less. Yep. All right. Well, it's time to close the letterbox. Thank you so much, Michael and Boyd. Boyd, together we'll go beat up some nerds together. It'll be fun. Drink some beers. Drive, drive your stingray. Yeah, drive your stingray. Take, 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 out, take out some letterboxes with a baseball bat. Oh, I hate manure. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? What was the? How can I forget what Michael J. Fox's character was named in that movie? Marty McFly. Marty McFly. McFly. <laughs> or Darth Vader. <laughs> or Darth Vader. Yeah. Uh, somebody did a poster I saw at um, that is at uh, the Blue Genie, which is a local crafts Christmas bazaar here in town. That I'm thinking about going back to get for myself, which is him as in the Darth Vader suit quote from uh, Back to the Future <laughs> that's done like a poster for a movie where that's the bad guy <laughs> from the planet Vulcan and I was like oh my I God, am I your density <laughs> exactly alright well it's time to get into the reviews and uh, you know what let's just start it out with something uh, that one of the strongest titles this week I think even though it may not be the strongest of this series altogether and that is Star Trek The Next Generation Season 7. Aww. What? Still makes me a bit sad. That it's over? Yeah. I mean, that's the hardest part about watching this season, is that it is the last season of Star Trek Next Generation. There is the feeling, like, just standing off to the sides, there's a bunch of dudes with push brooms just waiting, and they can see them at all times, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they, they knew it. I mean, they, uh, Season 6, I still, still think, is one of the strongest... Uh, of the next-gen seasons. And Seven isn't a letdown, but there is a definite feeling that they were starting to put all their, their real creative energy into Deep Space Nine, which they were really sure was going to carry stuff. You know, you, you know, Worf is basically back as a spare part at this point because he, he's got so much plot over in DS9. Yeah. You know, they've given him the Defiant, which is just like, hey, Star Trek finally gets an attack ship. A lot of the characters have left yeah. At this point, you know, I mean, like uh, Chief O'Brien's yeah. not there anymore either. And this is very much a season all about tying up loose ends on a character based business and a lot of filler that has to do with like, well, what character we, we don't want to leave these. We know we're going to movies, which will be all plot based. What else can we talk to about these actual characters, the secondary characters, mind you, more that we haven't explored yet? Well, what about? Troy, the rest of Troy's family, and what about, you know, that sort of thing. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I'd say its strongest point is war, the Worf and Alexander episode yeah. on that level, because by season four, anything that has to do with Worf and the Klingons is awesome. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is going to be a good one. And sure enough, it pretty much always is. <laughs> with the subtle evolution of the, of, of the makeup, which got better, really reaching a high point by this point. Right. Uh, and, I mean... <sighs> I think the the biggest problem with this, this season is just that it feels like there's too much filler. It feels like there's too much of a sort of like, oh, we seem to be most popular with a really left wing political bent type of people. So let's just appeal to them. And it gets to the point where it's like, 
it gets kind of laughable and silly, especially even though it's a good episode. The fact that there's like a environmental damages caused by the warp drive episode. Which I actually really liked. I mean, it's, still, it is still, a good episode. It still stands up as, as a, a political metaphor without being... You know, it's overt without being heavy-handed or throwing the characters away. Right. You, and you, you, it goes back to a thing that you'd had all along, that Picard and his crew are often truer to the morals and precepts of the Federation than yeah. the rest of Starfleet is. And it, it, so it, it still knew what it was. No, that, I, 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 I can think that was completely great. agree with that. Yeah. It's just nobody was thinking in it's almost like the the writers of Star Trek going, you know what? Fuck the other Star Trek shows. Yeah. We're ending. Fuck them. We're going to screw them right now. Because the end of that is like saying, guess what? Now nobody's allowed to go past Warp 5, which is like what they were at, at top speed in the original series. So it's like... But then that kind of didn't matter for DS9 because DS9... Was in one was, place. ...was pretty much stationary and you got the wormholes. But it does kind of fuck with, with, with Voyager, but then again, well, you know... But it's never mentioned ever again. So yeah. they were like... They <laughs> was like the equivalent of uh, cutting off Rick's hand in the comic book of Walking Dead where afterwards the writer's like, oh shit, why did I do that? That was an error. Except you couldn't fix that that by just not mentioning it. Like, next (laughs) issue, Rick's hand mysteriously reappears. Wait, Rick, didn't you? No, we don't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's actually some really good episodes. Uh, Parallels is one of the best ones of, if you like the twisty, dimensional, time-shifting stuff where Worf gets to be the center person where He's back on the ship and keeps sliding from one parallel reality to another. Sweet. you know. With you also the comedy of value of, of it's his birthday, which he hates. So right. it actually starts off as, as a, a classic awkward war story. And it's pretty much the, the second shot fired across the bow of the awkward Troy and Worf end up becoming lovers story. Yeah. That like is completely disavowed in the first film. They <laughs> literally open the first film with like something that makes it clear that we're never going to bring this up again. <laughs> well, and then, then, of course, in DS9, I mean, the, 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 uh, the Worf, that plot is just so great and then becomes so yeah. incredibly tragic and it's like that, right. that's actually one of the best things and yeah like yeah it's kind of like funny like you can't talk about this without talking about what happened in ds9 which no, point is, is, is so incredibly strong and deserves that if if they're making their plans then a blu-ray ds9 set oh well that's coming next yeah, yeah because that's just um, yes. And you've got the Pegasus with a Captain Picard day, where basically Riker has to deal with his loyalty to John Locke from yeah. Lost, yeah. <laughs> who was his former commander, and Captain Picard dealing with a controversial science that was left behind on his former ship. A pretty damn good episode. The surprisingly good Lower Decks, which is oh, deals yeah. with, like, what about everybody else on the ship? We never get to see their stories, and this is that one where you're like, okay, let's take a look at some random assortment of people and follow them around for a couple days, and it actually works much more than it doesn't. Uh, a lot of Cardassian stuff going on in here, to be sure. Um, you The final appearance of Roe that was supposed to be a lead-in uh, in many ways to uh, Voyager, as was the reappearance of Wesley Crusher. Yeah. There was a whole thing where he comes in and he's a fucking prick now. <laughs> he's like a total insufferable prick yeah. of a college student kid. 
and goes down to this Native American colony planet and starts siding with them. And the idea was, uh, what, what was it? The, what was the guy's name from Voyager? Who's the Native American? Oh yeah, uh, one of the McKee. See, originally the plan was he was going to be one of the guys on that planet. But by the time they decided that wasn't going to happen that way, they had already started. They the episode had been written. They'd gone into pre-production. So it was last minute changes. Um, one of the funniest, of course, this comes with all good things. One of the single greatest moments in the still, history of the show. The, still, the the, the the hour and a half ender that you can as well get as a separate standalone. One of the things I've loved about as they've been re-releasing these, they've been going, "Hey, let's release as movie editions, just all in one of the two-parter, the really good two-parter episodes." Yeah. They haven't done it with all of them. For instance, there's no Time Zero one. Really? <laughs> really? But uh, yeah, the really great stuff like this. Yes, you're gonna have like, okay, this is the movie with different special features more special features than are just on this which certainly as well does a pretty good job with being filled up with great stuff there's been a little eh the last couple but this one it it goes out in style you've still got you know the stuff you expect the deleted scenes gag reels uh, archival mission log type stuff uh, where it comes together is on the last disc where they do a whole three-part series called The Sky's the Limit called The Eclipse of Star Trek Next Generation, which takes a look at, you know, basically everything that why did it end, what was going on as it ended, what was going to happen next with, like, pretty much everyone involved looking back, saying how it affected their careers, everything. This is the, the tie-up for movie-length tie-up that you were really hoping would be on here, and indeed is. Although the funniest part is... Uh, Marina Sirtis is just like you see her in almost in every interview, kind of a bitch. She's <laughs> hilarious. I got to interview her once, and she is funny as all hell. She just had a very, very pointed sense of humor. She just has nothing good to say most of the time. We're just like she's the one person who I'm like. I bet you when everyone gets together and actually does have their after hours poker games, you're the one person whose name is not on the show. No, she's just had a very sardonic sense of humor. Yeah, maybe so. She's, she's Greek South London. Yeah. That's just the culture is very sardonic. So. Um, she certainly didn't have anything good to say about the Wharf Troy relationship, which she's actually quite funny about disparaging here. And in that case, she's right. It was a well, her, her complete and miscalculation. Both, are both like, <laughs> not so probably good. not. But um, yeah, and this course has the, the classic Journey's End, the saga of Star Trek Next Generation that played before the final episode when it aired on television. I still remember we like all gathered, didn't realize that the start time was actually for that. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, oh, fuck. But, you know, what are you going to do? It's, and, it's and here. all good things. I think, you know, it's very rare that a show can give you a sense of a sense of closure and remain loyal to itself and, and make you feel like, yeah, I'm saying bye to the actors who I've had around in my life and the characters at the same time, and but not make you feel like this is a mawkish, like, breaking the, the fourth wall ending. Yeah. This, this, it's a masterpiece. It's pitch of perfect of how to end a show. Yeah. It really is. In fact, I think it might be better than any of the Next Generation films that have come out. Oh, it is by far. Yeah, I mean, First Contact, pretty close, but it still has some giant tonal missteps inside that movie. Yeah. Uh, whereas really all good things. It's like, I mean, completely circular with the beginning. You get all the emotional beats you'd want out of it. It's just, it's just great stuff with the true real Gene Roddenberry Star Trek spirit to the whole. And it's just a remind. I mean, this whole re-release has been a, it's, it's never going to look better. This whole sequence has been just great. Oh yeah. It's been a reminder Particularly because they went back and they redid the special effects, where they, you know, to make them actual 
perfect recreations of what they did. <laughs> yes. With much with you know high resolution and like everything to make them look great and it works so well. It just looks terrific. Yeah, and I it's, think they've they've this is one of those times where a you know, even if you have the have it before if you love these shows, this is this is as good as it's gonna get. I mean, yeah. this is the they, they, they look like they were edition. This is. They look like they were just made. Yeah. It's just that fresh, crisp, and clean. I know I've heard people saying, why would I buy it? I'm just watching it on Netflix. Okay, challenge yourself. Rent one of the Blu-rays, put it in, watch an episode, and then put on Netflix after and try and watch that same episode there. And you'll go, wow, I've been sitting through these like that? <laughs> I need it's to like, get these it's on like Blu-ray. Stare, it's like, now it's like staring at daguerreotypes. You're like, ooh, right. really? Mm, yeah. No. Huge, huge difference. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to another television series that's not quite at its end, but it's definitely, you can tell from this season, it's entering its final spiral towards it, even though it's more of a holding pattern than not, and that is the FX television series Justified. Now, this, of course, uh, is based on the late Dear Departed Elmore Leonard's uh, some novels, Pronto, and Riding the Rap, the Rap, and a short story, Fire in the Hole, with the, the main character, Raylan Givens, played... Which alone is a great name. Oh, it's such a great name. Played so iconically by Timothy Oliphant, recapturing the what he should be doing with his career after Deadwood, you know. He had a few like, I'm going to play very different types of roles, and that didn't work out. It's like, maybe you should go back to being a sheriff again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but I'm not going to do it in the Old West. That's fine. Just do a cowboy. That's all I want to see. So whenever he plays a cowboy, I'm all in. It always works. He is he's our new Clint Eastwood, I guess. He'll I don't do. know. Um but this series has always been about him as sort of the guy. He's like he's a got shades of gray type of lawman. He's willing to he's willing to bend the rules in order to put the bad guys away ultimately. And sometimes to bend the rules to protect the ladies who are have questionable relationships with the law themselves that he gets himself caught up with. Uh, ladies of negotiable virtue exactly in fact at this point the woman who we basically we start the series seeing him having moved on to after his wife sort of abandoned him uh there's a several seasons where he's with her and by i think it was that season four she's ends up with boyd played just spectacularly by the great Walton Goggins, uh, who's so wonderful, just incredible. Just in everything. uh, Who plays, like, the most, like, eloquent and loquacious redneck ever. (laughs) It's like, he's the Shakespeare of rednecks. (laughs) You know, to the point where the show is making meta jokes about it now. (laughs) You know, it's like, I've been accused of many things, Counselor, but being not eloquent is not one of them. (laughs) There's there, there's going to come a point I think somewhere around hate when uh, hateful eight comes around where there's going to be this whole audience that's going to go this Walton Goggins guy is really good and people like me and you are going to go we've I been know, telling we've you been since telling the you. fucking shield come yeah. on oh god yes yeah uh, yeah and this is this season is the ramp up to the final confrontation i feel like i'm more about like next season season six is the last season of justified i feel like i'm more advanced reviewing that because this season is the calm before the storm as it interviews interviews introduces a few new characters uh by of course always great actors uh you get michael rapaport comes in as daryl crow the the redneck patriarch of a small family that moves up from florida to kentucky because they find out one of the one of their distant relatives is living up there and just got himself a whorehouse (laughs) (laughs) Um, as you do yeah as you do and 
he's wonderful, and all the new character actors that are coming to this are really, really, really good, um, except for possibly Amy Smart. Who is really? I've never found to be all that smart, and she, huh. uh, she's she's a just okay actress, and she has a small role that expands more than it needs to for the purpose of way, of of Raylan having someone to have sex with, largely eh. more than anything else. There's a lot of that going on with characters that relate to the primaries because this season isn't really about them; it's about Walton being put uh, Walton Goggins Boyd being put in the position where. He's going to have to make a big decision what he wants to do with his life. Is he going to go straight? Is he going to go dark, more serious, and more big time? It's kind of him coming to this crisis point, both with that, both with his relationship with the girl that that Raylan used to be fucking, (laughs) that now he's married, Boyd's married to, which, you know, we see that story really building up and not a lot going on with Raylan. He's really not in this season that much, all things considered. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question now, just for the record. Um, when season six, which seems to be where they're going to bring this into land, Raylan and Boyd, who survives? If either of them, who are you saying? Because I think that'd be interesting to come back when season six happens and just get that get that on the record. I wouldn't be surprised if they both make it out. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think they're going to find out that somebody else is a bigger enemy than both of them and having coming to a sort of reluctant agreement uh, to work together where Raylan ends up agreeing to make it look like Boyd is dead or gone or whatever, killed by somebody else just so he can go live on an island somewhere with his, partially because he does have a real relationship to some degree with Raylan's ex. But as you'll see, when you get to the end of the show, this season, everything's going to get real complicated real fast with that. Uh, and not in the most obvious way you'd think in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. And they've even, like, with the promo has been very clear, like, this next season, it's about the entire task force going, we're fucking tired of Boyd. Every single thing that's ever gone on, Boyd has been involved with, we are going to take this motherfucker down under the RICO Act. So the whole next season's about, like, the chase to finally put Boyd away, and obviously he ain't going to go down easy. This season, like I said, the calm before the storm. It's kind of taking out some minor characters and getting them out of the way. Like, okay, so we don't have to deal with them anymore. Uh... It's not a bad season at all, but I think in many ways it feels like an earlier season of most shows. It's everything just sort of like in a little bit of a holding pattern. So, yes, maybe not the strongest thing they've done yet, but still well worth watching. Nothing to be disappointed at. Nice to see Jeremy Davies come back in a brief appearance here because he's by far the funniest character in the history of this show. Uh, is a Dickie Bennett, who's this totally insane redneck, <laughs> like tweaked out <laughs> meth head, who's every time he's on screen, he makes me laugh. And Stephen Root. Stephen Root in a very small as as uh, Yay for the, the a hanging judge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, still a great show. It's ramping up to get to the end. If you haven't started this uh, yet, maybe now's the time, because I guarantee you as this new season starts airing, you're going to start seeing people tweeting and talking about it online. Like, as they're like, oh, shit, here we go. So, anyway. Plus, I think a lot of people who are looking for something post-Sons of Anarchy will, will suddenly go, okay. Dude, if you're watching Sons of Anarchy and uh, you really like it, then you should have been watching this by now already. Because yeah. <laughs> you can deal with rednecks as protagonists and really, really great writing and acting. There you go. ta all right, well, that's going to keep us on television, at least till we get to the end of this show. But let's skip around and talk about horror, more noticeably, as above, so below. 
which is, I believe, isn't that, where did that originally stem from? It's not actually from alchemy, as the movie claims, right? Uh, I thought it was like Wiccan or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think, well, you know, Wiccan, is like, yeah, which is basically, most of that was made up by a bunch of, you know, bored accountants in the, in Wessex in the 1920s, anyway. <laughs> We're a druid now. No, you're a bloke in a silly hat. You're a Morris dancer. If you want to look up, like kids, if you, if you if you want to look up like how silly a lot of contemporary paganism in the UK is, just look up Morris dancing, which is one of the things that it was that it, it springs from, and it is it's basically gentlemen dancing around, waving their handkerchiefs and hitting, hitting sticks at each other. <laughs> it is the oh god, my country. Something sometimes Alistair where, Crowley was embarrassed about him. Yeah, sure. yeah. Crowley was off going, I'm going to have sex with multiple ladies, and they're going, we're going to sing like this. Nyar. Yeah, not surprising Crowley moved to America then. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm going to L.A., fuck you guys. Yep. Uh, or don't fuck you guys, the case may be. Well, this is a horror film directed by John Eric Dowdle. No, don't run off quite yet. Yes, John Eric Dowdle's not exactly known for his quality films in the past, having made such pieces of shit as Poughkeepsie Tapes, oh, yeah, Devil. Poughkeepsie Tapes isn't terrible. It's pretty awful. It's, it's not. It, it's I it's rough. I barely got through it. Yeah. Uh, and, Devil is terrible. And Quarantine, which is just a shameless and not anywhere near as good uh, knockoff of Wreck. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't like Devil at all. I'm sorry. Oh, well, nobody likes Devil. Okay, okay. I thought you were saying you did. <laughs> no, 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 like, no, no, oh, no, no. Nobody uh, likes Devil. <laughs> but this is... I, it's the best thing he's done. Yeah. I mean, hey, and the thing price. is, this Better is than no price. It's, it's a great idea. It has a really cool poster in the context of what the whole film is actually about, which is like sort of Paris upside down from the Paris, uh, you know, the, the Eiffel tower, the, the Paris tower, you know, that Paris thing, the Paris phallic symbol <laughs> thing, that, that, that Paris tower. I saw, I saw it in Vegas. Uh, you know, if I have something that really irritates me about this is when it, there's this tendency that no, happens more often than not in horror that is like, oh, no, we're very feminist because we have a strong female protagonist, except they forgot to have them write, written as anything but irritating and irresponsible. Yeah. You know, which is the case here with Perdita Weeks, who plays... Oh, uh, uh, yeah, The Descent. Every every single character in The Descent is utterly responsible, which is why that film actually kind of bugs me, and I don't think it's a feminist horror film. Okay. And this suffers from the same problem, uh, because... yeah, uh, yeah oh the, She's just like irrational and puts everyone else's life on the line for her own insanity. You're like, no, this is not what you would call a strong female protagonist. This is a female protagonist that definitely was written by men who are not great fans of females. <laughs> I mean, at least in a vaguely misogynist sort of way, because she is the ultimate ball biting bitch. Yes. Uh, but uh, and utterly untrustworthy. She actually almost gets, gets her, uh, Iranian uh, assistant killed in the first five minutes. Yeah, when she's doing her little Indiana Jones bit in yeah. uh, in, in Iran, when we see basically doing absolutely stupid and and disrespectful, culturally disrespectful shit to get the basically information that becomes the Rosetta Stone to opening up this alchem al alchemic al alchemic. Alchemical, alchemical language. She is indeed much like her father before her, who many believed were, was insane because he committed suicide. Uh, al alchemy scholar, and she believes she has found the clue to get the Philosopher's Stone. Now, I ain't talking about Harry Potter here. Talking about like, well, okay, kind of is like Harry Potter. Yeah, I guess it was the Sorcerer's Stone in America. Right? Yeah, because you know, hard. We don't know what Philosopher's Stone is. Um, the idea being something that can, this rock that can turn anything into gold or silver and can grant eternal life. Um, there actually is a pretty fascinating history behind the search 
for the Philosopher's Stone. And some of the more interesting parts of this film are when it touches on that, such as talking about the famous Nicholas Flamel and people like that. No mention of William D. I was kind of surprised yeah, that that never came but... up. Um, but she finds a place, she finds out in Paris, basically, uh, with the help of a former lover who wants nothing to do with her at first, played by Ben Feldman, uh, who's always likable enough. He d- he seems to be affable second fiddle. That's his That's job. That's his job. And, stuff, like, he, he, and you will recognize him from lots of things where you'll go, oh, it's him, I've seen him and stuff. And she hooks up with it, she's got a cameraman with her, Benji, played by Edwin Hodge, and she meets finds out that there's a, by, you know, secret stuff that never occurred to anyone else to try before. Uh, there's, yeah, she finds the map to figure out where the Philosopher's Stone is going to be. Of course, it's through the catacombs and a never-before-explored passageway. And at first you're like, okay, this is like an Indiana Jonesy type horror film type thing, the mummy, what have you, going for that sort of thing, but with a darker edge. That's cool. I'm into it. I like I like that kind of thing if it's done right. And, you know, I mean, for, outside of her being a real bitch, it's like I'm on the whole enjoying it and when it gets to the point where you're like early on you're like oh this is kind of getting to that like sort of rec 2 thing where it's like oh reality is doing things it's not supposed to do and they're all aware of that but have no idea what to do about it like the tunnels are changing on themselves and things are, are like memories are surfacing in a physical way it's actually pretty damn interesting it's just that I think it reaches a point where it wants to cram too much too fast into the film. I really enjoyed the conclusion. Yeah. I'll tell you that. I think this brought it to a point, an idea that was perhaps while it's playing out a little too on the nose. I mean, you're like, good idea, but maybe you telegraphed it a lot too much. <laughs> but when it all comes down to the ending point, you're like, that was clever. I have to tip my hat to you, sir. Well, I mean, let, let's let's... Uh, get rid of half of the audience for this by saying that it is found footage uh, but it actually works quite well uh, and I'm not an enemy of found footage in the, in the way that, that some people are I, mean, I, I think when done well I really really enjoy it I think this did it kind of smartly um, it, you, yeah, and it melds kind of big concept effects with the found footage surprisingly smoothly yeah a lot smoother than a lot of other films have and it, it takes advantage of its location which is the catacombs which is oh, a huge it's network actually filmed in the Parisian cat- in catacombs the, which so you I don't like, know Shh. about are basically this huge network of tunnels and sewers under Paris which is you could you could hide Paris in there yeah, they, um, they had to go and explore the catacombs to, fig, to and build the ideas of the script around what they had to work with. So you're like, hey, man, just as a challenge, you've got to kind of get say, okay, that's kind of cool. Like, and it is actually, the, the catacombs are actually an ossuary, which if you're not aware of what that is, that's when you go, hey, we've buried six million people down here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do something nice with the bones. <laughs> let's do some decoration. I, and it, So, I mean, it's, Got one of the great lo- one of the great locations you could have, and it actually does a pretty good job with that. You know, I mean, like for a workman like director who has given us some real turds, I think this is actually like a sign that there's some there's some talent. And I don't, I don't hate quarantine in the same way that you do. I mean, no, was I, don't, I don't. Job I don't. Which was it. to re- which was to remake a really good film. Quarantine's uh, not even a bad film, but it's so not anywhere near as well made as Wreck, and it's just 
ripping off everything. Its best moments are all because they're shot for shot taken from Wreck. Yeah. Whereas its worst moments are all where it makes inexplicably bad decisions of what to change. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, yeah. seriously, you're going to just eliminate the whole religious angle from the end of Wreck and you think that's going to make it scarier? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, it, removing the Catholicism I, was not my major problem with it. Um, but th- this, you know, it does have some... Re- it's got uh, the last 20 minutes where you're kind of deep in the bowels of Paris and the, yeah. and the rules of, of, of reality have completely collapsed. Yeah. And it's up to the central character to suddenly go, hey, I've been a complete bitch who has endangered everybody else. It's up to me to actually step up in a really responsible, smart way. And she doesn't solve the problem by punching something. Yeah. Although she does whack a few things around the head with her camera. But that's it's a true. Thing. It's really about her going, I have to think about what the alchemical solution is. And it kind of reminded me of... Um, like playing, a, playing an old point-and-click adventure. Yeah. That you've got to pay attention to what you did five hours ago and go, oh, no, I've got to go back and basically reverse that. And this, it, it seems like it's scripted by the same people that did something like The Dig for Lucasfilm. I, Lucas I, I, I think if there's, any, if there's a frustration there, it's that the audience, or anybody at least who's really paying attention to this, watching it, is so already knows what's going on long before the characters do that the point where it starts... You know, about the halfway point where you're like, okay, now we've crossed over to this thing. The audience already knows. We've already figured it out. It's like, couldn't be more obvious if they tattooed it on on all of our foreheads. And that the characters are still like, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> what should we do? Keep going forward? No, you idiot. <laughs> what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? <laughs> anyway, I, it's a very flawed horror that has a lot of really good ideas in it. It suffers from mediocre performances. It suffers from mediocre filmmaking. It suffers from mediocre dialogue. But there's more than enough interesting stuff here that if somebody, for instance, a really good director and writer saw this and went, you know, I want to take this world and make a sequel to it and do it really, actually, everything I saw was possible here, that I think you could have an amazing little horror film. The guys who did Wreck should remake it. Right. How awesome would that, that be? Would be? That would be wonderful. <laughs> and then they make it... If the guys who made Wreck made this, this movie would have been fucking terrifying. Yeah. I mean, because there's all the right elements for this to be a terrifying horror film. Whereas this, but... is, this isn't terrifying, but it does have some good creepy moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, let's move on to a, a Fantastic Fest hit that uh, I saw, but it's been two years now since I saw it, so I'm a little, I'm not quite as up-to-date on it as you are, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count on you to talk about more than me. The Congress, a French-Israeli live-action slash animated sci-fi drama directed and written by Ari Fullman that has a sort of meta quality as it follows uh, Robin Wright Penn as Robin, Robin Wright, Wright Penn. Uh, Robin, oh, Robin, Robin Wright. Wright Robin Wright. Sorry, sorry. I'm still so used this, to it. This starts off with one of the most fascinating monologue sequences that I've seen since uh, the uh, conversa- the conversation uh, with Bruce Willis uh, about you know about being a wash up in Pulp Fiction, mm. and uh, it's basically uh, Robin Wright's manager, played by um, oh God, brain fart, um, Danny Houston. No, no, oh, no, Harvey Keitel, but played by Harvey Keitel, explaining to her how she fucked up her career. Well, it's more Danny Houston explaining it to her and him going, "Yeah, he's right." No, 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 no. At the beginning, it's him. 
That's oh, the first, okay. first time through, it's him. And then there's, they reiterate that okay, right, with, 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 with Danny Houston as the studio guy going, this is how you fucked up your career. Right. And I mean, that it moment really, where he's like, when we saw you as Princess Buttercup, the whole world was charmed by you. The, yeah. it was at, the world was at your feet. You could do anything you want. And then you fucked it all up. You just made bad decisions. Which is arguably true. Yeah. I mean, this is the fascinating thing. It's, it's Robin Wright playing... A, a fictionalized version of Robin Wright. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. And the whole idea is that the studio system is on the verge of collapse because they've decided you know, it, everything that, that they do is just complicated by having actors. So why not so use CG technology? Digitize them. Mm-hmm. Buy, the, buy the rights to their image in perpetuity. Yeah, to their image, their voice, their mannerisms. I mean, this isn't far-fetched. No. <laughs> well, I mean, they've attempted it on a few, on a few occasions. I yeah. Mean, Sky, uh, oh, I wouldn't Sky be su- Captain uh, uh, and uh, the World, World of, of Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I wouldn't be surprised if some deals have already been signed and lots and lots of the type of recording and mocapping and all that stuff has, in fact, already happened. Yeah. You know, we don't have the technology to make this workable yet, but we will, and it will be less than 20 years from now. And she, and basically, they force her into a corner where she has to sell her image. And it's the end of acting. It's the end of screen act, yeah, which saying. is a fascinating idea to deal with because yeah. we're kind of staring down the barrel of that. And there's a wonderful moment where she's where they're trying to convince her of like to, the, the other respectable actors and actresses have done it, and it cuts to this film within a film of with Michelle Williams doing this kind of horrible rom com that is so bad. And you clearly <laughs> there's no acting skill in there, but the, like the, the studios don't care. It's very subtly done to like imply they don't give a shit because they just want the name recognition. Right, right. And there's this moment where her eye starts twitching and the, 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 they're all going, oh yeah, no, just, we can't fix that. The computer does that now and that's how you can tell it's these characters and she's like... That's funny. And it's really, and it's about her personal choice of doing this. And then it flips forward 20 years. Right. When that is collapsing now, this idea of creating characters is collapsing, and instead now you will be able to become those ca- the, these celebrities by drinking them. You know, you <laughs> the, these new contracts. So, the, but this model is going to be around. It's a very Neil Stevenson sort of pop fantasy well, of the future on, world. It's based on a, 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 a Stanislaw Lem. Um, uh, novel, uh, the Congress, Lem, who did Solaris. So it is that kind of like you know strange, surreal, questioning the nature of what we are and our relationship with with what we are. But when she goes into that twenty years into the future, suddenly this is when it drops into Animated. this yeah very old school um, uh, Looney to- pre Looney Tunes kind of merry melodies animation. Right. That is very surreal. And with this with is the touches world that of, have created. of touches of. Uh, um... What's his name? Max uh, Fleischer. And and even like heavy metal. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Damn it. Famous director, did tons of animated films. Yeah, Wiz- yeah. Wizards, heavy metal. Bakshi. Bakshi. Ralph, Definitely. Because it's like, it has the style of early stuff, but it has a sort of that crudite <laughs> <laughs> of Vashki. And like, I think that's very intentional there too. Um, this is I, one of the smartest films about the nature of film. And our relationship with technology and and our connection with celebrity. It packs a huge amount in at a cerebral level, but it is but, carried by the fact that Robin Wright Penn, even when she is animated, is so good. 
She, she is. You're really, like, it kind of makes it even sadder when you go, she's this great. And she spent 20 years in the wilderness as an, uh, in real life. And it kind of portrays that. Right. So there is this, this real feeling of connection to an actress that you know and you love. And you go, why didn't she do more good stuff? What were the mistakes what she made? They happen. build up the plot about her son and her daughter and her, her family relationships. And it, it becomes truly tragic because it makes you think, well, there are personal reasons why actors and actresses may disappear. And it's not just they could, oh, their agent couldn't get them good roles. This is an incredibly dense, tragic and very moving film. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect from it the first time I watched it. And it was the more I went with it, the more I was blown away, purely by the strength of the performances. And then you take in that it's, you know, how visually stunning this film well, is. Well, the thing about this movie is that, yes, everything you're saying about it is true, but I want to focus for a second on the denseness of it. It is almost impenetrable to a casual audience. Uh, it's so dense. Yeah. Like, this is not a movie you can go and leave to use the bathroom and come back for. So you better bring like a catheter with you or something if you're going to sit through the whole thing. It is filled with stuff. It is every frame of this film has new information that advances the storyline, even if it's in a meta or a, a metaphorical way. It's it is really brilliant, but I have a feeling that they it's one of those films that never quite reaches that while being surreal. And packed with information, never quite realizes the sort of ambient beauty of something like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, although it certainly wants to. But it, I think, will be a little intimidating to people without that, with the just just information being thrown at you throughout it. Because when I got to the end of this film, I was kind of tired. Like, I remember being like... Oh my God, that was a lot of movie to take in. I don't even know for sure how I felt about it. It wasn't. I it took me a couple of days to think about this movie before I could say, okay, I definitely like that movie, but I need to go back and watch it again. Something I still, sadly, have not had the chance to do. Uh, well worth it. I mean, and I think it's something that improves with with multiple rewatchings. But there are, you know, I mean, even for the incredible density, the fact that the and how it interconnects. The fact that there are these sequences that are so incredible. And the, the high point of this, now, you know, frankly, I was kind of disappointed that this didn't get more credit. There's a, the, the sequence where uh, they're motion capturing her emotions and the, the, camera, the, the guy working the system is actually a very respected cameraman who she's worked with a whole bunch. And so there's a commentary there on what happens to cameramen and cameramen when, when you come to the point of doing everything, you know, artificially within within computers right. you know this whole ecosystem of how a film is created dies out so there's a comment there where he goes well you know at least i'm still working with lights and cameras and you're like holy shit this 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 hurts as somebody who loves film that that moment just hurts but it cuts to her inside this dome and he's trying to get the the emotional responses from her to capture them and she's not doing it because she's still not feeling it and Kaitel takes the microphone and tells her a story about herself and runs her through all the emotions that you need. And it's an incredible moment that talks about the relationship between agents and actors. And he is still manipulating her to get the performance he wants, mm. but it's also emotionally true. And that's the thing. I think you can go back and rewatch this and it is, you know, it is a dense, it is a very cerebral film. And let's not forget, it's a film hipster's 
paranoiac wet dream of a movie <laughs> i mean like i'm sorry things are never going to get as bad as this film is no, putting no, out no, there this it, is it, this is conspiracy theory of paranoias but ones that i guarantee you we know personally some film hipsters who may work in <laughs> fact for the company or have worked for the company that is putting out this disc yeah that believe that this has already happened yeah <laughs> we're I already think, living in this it, world it, yeah it is a, a, a cinematic dystopian future yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, like the performances really. I, I, the one, uh, the one complaint I would have about it is that uh, Harvey Keitel disappears after the after the first act, and this is one of the best things he's done in forever. It right, really, since his relationship it, with Quentin. Yeah, it really, it really moving. Huh. Yeah, he's so good in this. But uh, yeah, the entire cast is great. Uh, some extras on your commentary with the director, production designer, which is great, and animation director. Uh, there's a about 10-minute short with Robin Wright t- interview talking about uh, making the film, uh, and th- and then basically just a booklet with stills in the film and a director's note and Q&A. So not a huge amount of stuff, but just the fact that this film exists, is out there, and people should be talking about it more. I mean, like it or not... If you're a film buff, this is a movie you're probably going to want to watch and and actually not play with your phone during. Yeah, it's, Sit down it's a and watch it's a it. great film about film. Exactly. And, you know, in, in a way that uh, you know, like Hugo, in a lot of ways. You know, in a lot. Yeah, you, know, you can. But Hugo, at least you could watch and go, oh yeah, I'm just enjoying this in action film. You know, but for people who go, oh no, I get all the references. I shall break out right. my Criterion editions of twelve films. Like it's 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 like that. Right. It's like Cool World for, with, with a PhD. I was just saying, I kept thinking Cool World when watching this, but and good. it's like Cool World is not a good movie. It's a terrible. You, film. I mean, that's the movie. If like a major, if they had successfully sold sold this film to a major studio, it just would have been Cool World. Yeah. And I kept thinking that watching this, going like, why couldn't Cool World have been this good, or at least even a quarter this good? Because everybody was drunk. <laughs> I mean, I think that if Cool World had like had any intent of injecting actual intellectualism into it, even on a minor level, it could have been a really great movie. But oh well. Sorry, there's just beer in there. Ah. <laughs> He's looking for another soda. Ah. Are you tired? No, I'm good. Okay. Uh, you can have beer, though, if you want. Uh, might happen. All right, fair enough. All right, talking about great films, let's go back at a classic that's been on my bucket list for a long time and I've never gotten around to seeing until now, and that's France. Fred Capra's... What? Hang on, roll back. I've never I thought, seen I thought all American film critics had to watch this. I've never seen Mr. Birth. Smith Goes to Washington until like three days ago. Really? Never seen it. 1939, uh, James Jimmy Stewart, who is one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, oh, 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 you can tell by my oh, terrible oh. impression of him when the show started. Uh <laughs> I'm a you know raging left wing radical, and even though Frank Capra himself ended up being kind of a, a you know pre libertarian libertarian douchebag, um, at this point he was pretty much that version of a liberal. And this is one of the great liberal movies of like the young like whippersnapper guy who runs like a boys club and is well known, well loved, and respected in his hometown, uh, and. He gets in a position where basically he's the lesser of two evils, or the lesser of three evils. They're like, well, we need somebody to replace a senator uh, uh, that died, and this guy is going to be safe. He's too dumb. He's a rube. He's too dumb to know how to get involved or do anything. So he'll take his paycheck, and he'll take the political clout that comes with it, and eventually, he'll, you know, someday he'll be smart enough to actually participate in politics. But, you know, 
the problem is what they don't count on the fact is he's the most patriotic American in the world. <laughs> he's so patriotic. And he enters a world, Washington, which he's never even been to before, despite the fact that he has like an encyclopedic knowledge of American history, where everyone is cynical and jaded and bought and sold. Everyone is. And they're laughing at him that he knows all this stuff about D.C., that he um, has any sort of that rubiness of looking <laughs> at, oh, my God, that's the capital, D.C., that, that's the capital. Oh, I, I, Abraham Lincoln was sat there on his chair. <laughs> I mean, they think it's hysterical, so they think he's no threat at all. They don't counter the fact that when he actually realizes the extent of the problem, and in fact, they use him as a scapegoat to deal with a scenario because there's graft going on. Terrible graft. That he decides to filibuster the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> in really one of the great scenes in any American film. Like, it's the last 20 minutes of this movie, pretty much. It's actually it's, half an hour. It's a half hour? It is a full of half hour. Of him filibustering hour, but... Congress, and it's just wonderful. Yeah, this is... Uh, it, this is one of the classics of American political cinema. Um... It, in hindsight, now there's, there are a few things that have not aged so perfectly about this film. By comparison, something like you know it uh, it happened one night. This is has not aged as well. One, uh, the central character now is basically Forrest Gump, yeah, um, which is kind of unfortunate in hindsight. Um, two, the the villains are so cartoonish, even more so. Uh, than uh, the character, the characters. It's a Wonderful Life, and, and it has this kind of huge pastiche thing. It was actually uh, when Capra first made it, and he showed it to people in DC. They were all livid. Uh, the senator for Mon- the, the junior senator for Montana, Montana was pretty much ready to kill him. Yeah. Uh, the press club was furious because there's a sequel. You know, the, all the, the all the press are either. You know, utter uh, sleaze bag ambulance chases, oh, yeah. or so incredibly jaundiced. And I like the jaundiced ones, and the political process is so incredible. Although even so, like one of the heroes ends up being one of the press guys yes. who sort of starts to see, like, kind of the, one of the head press guys starts to see, like, hey, this guy's not an idiot. He's we're the ones who lost what he had. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, my cats I, have decided to start taking out all the things <laughs> on my shelves. Hey, we didn't even know you could jump up here. <laughs> but, but I mean, there are like, like I said, it's not aged perfectly. But this is a masterclass in film construction. Yes, that there is this this character that comes out of nowhere, and you by the end of it, you know he is pulling against everything in the cosmos. But you absolutely root for it, even though you go, he's kind of an idiot. He's ridiculously naive. How can you be this dumb but and have this well read? Really saves this film is the fact that yeah, I mean uh, James Stewart, you know, really does play up the hayseed a lot, and it kind of like a little bit too much in places. It's still sure. a really good performance, but it's still uh, uh, Gene Arthur uh, as uh, his secretary yeah. is phenomenal. Has, has, Just has, blousy and burned out, cynical girl Friday. Yeah, Claude Rains oh. as the senior senator who you know was a good man who has now become very compromised and and really ends up leading the charge against him, even though he knows that you know this guy that that uh, uh, Mister Smith is completely innocent. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful political discourse. Uh, uh, Edward Arnold as Jim Taylor, who is the state's big fixer. Who is the, really the source of the graft? And he's yeah. you know, this huge, pompous, bombastic figure. Uh, Guy Kibbe as uh, 
Governor Governor Hubert Happy Hopper, who is kind of the model for the mayor in the Nightmare Before Christmas uh, in yeah, a lot of true. ways. I mean, this it's this has got a big cast and a lot of very. I mean, as Capper did, very bigger than life type people in it. I mean, certainly like his skill was taking these things that were very hyperbolic and very exaggerated and yet managing to really find a soul in it, to really make you be able to connect with it, to make, despite how big it was, to make it all hit home. And and this, at least to me, I think this might be his masterpiece of doing that. He's also It's also incredible that he takes extremely minor characters and makes them so successful. Uh... Harry Carey turns up as the uh, as the president of the Senate, and uh, during the the uh, very good commentary on this by uh, Frank Capra Jr., he actually discusses the casting of Harry Carey on, uh, uh, of that part, which only has like he only has like, two lines, but he's such a fantastically developed character, and he's actually the final person you see, and it's a beautiful character beat. And he, uh, Capra actually had somebody else lined up to to do the part, and he looked at him and went, "I've only got a couple of lines. This isn't a big part." And he went. No, you don't get it. And Harry Carey went, this guy's really important, isn't he? This guy is a pivotal part of how this film operates. And he went, you understand what this is? And that's how he got the part. Mm. And he's so good. And there's all these tiny little characters who have one line or half a line. And you know them. And I think that's why this really is a, a masterpiece. It is, you know, in hindsight deeply politically naive in, fact, in the same way there's there's a great uh, somebody did an essay a couple of years ago a uh, criticism of um, It's a Wonderful Life pointing out that uh, you know actually giving the money to the bank at the end is actually the worst thing you could possibly do of and course. the bank should have been allowed to close it's actually from, ta- <laughs> from, from, the, from the, the, the value of the town actually like a terrible terrible idea um, and you kind of you know there's a, you almost now you look at this and go Holy shit balls! He's he's a Tea Party anti-hero. Uh, <laughs> like now, the political metaphor has shifted so far that you really look at it and go, "Oh yeah, no, this is kind of true." Unfortunate places, but it is still uh, you know a pivotal part of the great American canon. It's you know I think and, the and third even, best of of Capra's uh, great three movies. If there's any frustration for me watching this, is that like even today people don't believe that anybody they elected into politics would be capable of this degree of lying of of graft and that sort of thing and you're like going dude they knew about it in the 30s it was already strongly a huge dominating part of the system then <laughs> you really don't think it's become more entrenched since then or or smarter or better handled exactly i'm like you're the naive one if you think that most people aren't paid for yeah I mean, it's, it, it, but you know the problem now is that Mr. Smith at the time was seen as kind of a valiant figure of the of the heartland, and now he's kind of a, yeah, you know, like I said, a Forrest Gump character. Yeah, you're you're right. Yeah, you know, in fact, you, he's almost in a way kind of Sarah Palin esque. He's like this, <laughs> you know, the 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 higher ups go, let's find some rube to to fill in, and they just become this wrecking ball that's like, oh no, put it back on a leash. Oh well, I, I'm not going to stand for for oh. this type of uh, of graft and corruption. You I'm betcha. I'm going to go shoot a moose. <laughs> all right. Well, this comes with a lot of extra features. It, it is comes a, with all the extra features in the world. It's a defining release for this film. I mean, it's just, it, it's a digibook. So it comes with a, you know, it's put into the hardback book with a bunch of pages, a little pamphlet that goes with it. And yeah, there's a full length feature length documentary called Frank Capra's American Dream and uh, conversations with Frank Capra Jr. And Frank Capra like, Jr. Whose job it seems to be 
now just to talk about his dad a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do? For yeah. one thing, he's named Frank Capper Jr. He's pretty much like... Uh, he could, he uh, could sell cars? Yeah. Well, I mean, your job is to talk about the stuff that your dad did because you got nothing. He could make films with Phil Stewart. He's like the greatest ever guy at talking about Frank Capra. <laughs> <laughs> He's a legend of talking about Frank Capra. He's anyway, a cottage industry ab- Absolutely packed with stuff. Anything you'd ever want to know about Capra at this period of his life or about this film, it's here. This is going to be the definitive version and it's pretty awesome. Anyway, let's move on to something that you may be looking forward to seeing in theaters, but you could see right now if you wanted to. It's on Netflix, and that's Into the Woods. Other version. Uh, well, yeah, the version in <laughs> theaters is the first actual filmed-for cinema version. What they've got now on Blu-ray and what you see on Netflix is the stage play Into the Woods, by St- music and lyrics by Stephen Son- Sondheim, uh, and that, that originally premiered in 1986 and has become since... Well, basically, if you went to high school in the 90s and were in drama club, the odds are your school put this play on. Um, it's a widely beloved musical that combines quite a few well-known fairy tales like, you know, uh, Jack the Giant Killer and uh, Little Red Riding Hood and Cinderella. And then halfway through when you think, well, that was, you know, that was cute, but... All right. Suddenly, at the ending point for any given fairy tale, subverts them all and starts like what seems to be almost like, and anything else would be a sequel. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, wait, it's not over? And you realize you're only at the halfway point. And yes, now you get to see what happens to all those characters after their stories finished. You know, I just saw the theatrical film, and I think they did a just fine job of doing it. I mean, Meryl Streep is a powerhouse. She could be in the worst movie ever made and still you go, but Meryl Streep was good in it. Um, Just as long as she doesn't attempt a South African accent again. (laughs) Right, true. I remember Africa. Um, But she, and and in this, she's great. Everybody's great in the new version, but she's going up against uh, Bernadette Peters. Yeah. Who is like, what Meryl Streep is to film, she is to Broadway. Yeah. Uh, she is just this legendary powerhouse of an actress, and she is just so wonderful. And cute as a button, but playing the Wicked Witch. Yeah. There was the, it's kind of this total, con- total contradiction, and she absolutely carries it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if, this is kind of a... It, this is taking the traditional fairy tales and making them into a comedy of errors. Right. And it does its... And it's sometime at its absolute peak of his powers. Yeah. You know, he's... He's rarely been better. It's daring characters die left, right, and center. You know when when the big get- shockers and as characters that die in this that you don't like. I mean, outside of the whole "ha ha, we're toying with your fairy tales" of like, whoa, you seriously, you just killed that character. And there's, there's several moments where where they remind you pointedly that Jack is actually a complete moron. Yeah. Not just likely. He is an idiot. Who Blithering really idiot. Magic beans. And his mother's like, oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> um, the other real standout performances, and this this is a you know the, basically the film version of the Broadway production. Uh, Joanne Gleason as the uh, uh, the the baker's wife. Yeah. Is. I mean, I didn't really know that she had a, much of a Broadway background. She is spectacular in this. This is, I mean, they, you, know, you can just sit back and watch those two go at it. But like, a, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's basically uh, American Playhouse uh, uh, recorded it for PBS. So it's three static cameras, pretty much. 
you're just watching the staging. So right, you know, As, and it you... feels like you're back in high school in like '92 when you got to watch this on a on a wet Saturday afternoon. But it's actually pretty damn good. Yeah, if you've ever that. seen this sort of thing, like you know, film stage stuff, you know what to expect in terms of visual quality and it's on blu-ray they fixed it up as much as you can fix up i, I think they this. actually did this pretty i mean there's some after effect uh, some, some yeah. after effects and some digital remnants uh and occasionally you'll get a, a kind of whip pan and you'll you'll get kind of some blurring going on but it looks pretty damn good it's actually worth getting on blu-ray not least because the sound quality is and like to stellar. be clear as well like if you're a fan of this original musical and you're looking forward to the movie I'm just going to warn you now, where as much as I did genuinely enjoy the film version, this, uh, uh, the film, you know, the the film for theaters version is, it cuts out multiple songs. Some songs are just instrumentals instead of the original version. I mean, it's lengthened in some ways, but significantly shortened in others. And this is, this Blu-ray is the entirety. It's the thing in its entirety. So if you loved it, this is the one you're going to want to get. Check out. No, there's no bonus features. What would you really include at this point? You know, I don't think most, uh, like a theatrical cast from, uh, God, when was it? This was 1987. Yeah. <laughs> Still is gatherable, probably, at this point, for a Broadway cast. This was the first tour. Yeah. This was the original tour on Broadway, because then it went to First National, London, a revival on Broadway, London Revival, Regent's Park, Public Theater, and then the film one. So <laughs> somebody every, high, filmed, every high school in America yeah. at least once. Some, somebody, this is in our town. Somebody filmed a really high-end version of the original Broadway production because it was the only time Bernadette Peters played the witch. So this was from that tour. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's nice to have something more Bernadette Peters work out there because she was so good and tragically taken from us, you know, horribly young and you know her, her work was just great I didn't know she was dead I thought she was okay. no she's not dead she's alive I was like what are you talking oh, she, about I thought she was dead no thank god for that I, yay I saw, Peters. she was just on television recently in something I can't remember what it was Hurrah! I, just, I am glad to be utterly utterly wrong yeah you were totally for some reason I thought she was dead no that's mm. the, oh thank god for that I don't know where, where. Oh, it was Smash. That was it. She's on that the TV would be series it, Smash. Like the yeah. things I the things I don't. Oh yeah. In fact, looking at her resume over the last few years is pretty much nothing. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> post, post Boston Legal that I would touch with a barge pole. Uh, <laughs> she was in Barney's Great Adventure. Shut up. What? Legends of Oz, Dorothy's Return. Uh, actually, I will say, I was actually a huge fan of the show Smash. No one was watching it, and I was like, this is fucking cool te- television about putting out a Broadway production. I'm so Which glad she's still alive. didn't translate to most audiences. Yeah. So. Funny as all hell, great voice. And in this, even though she's playing the old Wicked Witch, cute as a button. Oh, so adorable. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, of course, that point where the old Wicked Witch turns into the younger, not quite so old Wicked Witch, then you're like, I'd do her. Yep. <laughs> of course, it was 87, uh, to be fair. Oh, anyway, I'm going to move, move on to what is definitely... Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I almost missed one. A film I did not get to watch, but you did. Uh, the U.S.-Canadian coming-of-age adventure film, Copenhagen. Oh, you saw this, though. <laughs> yes, this, this I, was an awkward one. I did not um, get a chance to see this at all, this so is, it's all This you. will be very challenging for a lot of American audiences for a reason that we will come to very, very soon. Uh, the basic plot is that uh, there's this uh, American guy who's 
hanging out in Europe with his friend and his friend's girlfriend, and he kind of doesn't like the girlfriend. It was just supposed to be a guy's trip, and they end up in Copenhagen, and he's like, dude, why'd you bring your girlfriend? It's like, my girlfriend hates you. I hate, my, I hate your girlfriend. Oh. I've been in that scenario. And it's like, he is, there's a basic problem that he is the world's whiniest character. Um, and him and his friend end up having a falling out. But yeah, there's a subtext to why he's so stressed about being in Copenhagen. Uh, this is where his family originally came from, and he's there looking for his grandfather, who he has never met. Um, and the only evidence he has he exists is a letter from his father, uh, <laughs> it, which he can't read because he doesn't read anything apart from English. So this is kind of problematic. So he ends up finding this this young girl uh, who says, oh, yeah, I can read the letter for you. And then he ends up pissing her off because, as I said, he is the whiniest fucking character you've <laughs> ever... I mean, like, you just... He's off-puttingly awful. And, you know, he, finally he, she kind of forgives him and they start hanging out. And they spend this really nice day together and they start to get friendly. And he's like, she's cute. And then she goes, oh, yes, I'm 14. Oh. Like I said, uh, this is going to be a bit, yeah. How, how, and how old and is he supposed to be? Oh, uh, late 20s. Oh, boy. So so his friend find, comes back and finds out and goes, you are awful. You are an appalling, uh, appalling human being. Slight. <laughs> Slight issue. When, the, the, that is going to make this that makes this film play very differently in America to where it will play in a lot of other countries. Age of consent there is fifteen. True. Very so different. this and there's actually a line where she goes, I'm gonna, he goes, I'm going to get in huge amounts of trouble, and she goes, I'm fifteen in a few days. You're not going to get into any trouble, which is really interesting. And, and the, you know, there's a brief um, uh, uh, documentary piece attached to this where the director goes, yeah. That is going to make audiences uncomfortable, um, and it you know it raises this question of cultural mores, and then says, well you know you know some of this stuff is about geography and lo- and local laws. Um, you know, initially I hated the central character so much because he's such an incorrigible, selfish man-child prick <laughs> that you're just like, I just want bad things to happen to you, and she's she's kind of mean to him in places, and kind of like, oh no, let's go look at. Let's go look at this pretty thing, and then puts him onto a, you know, a, a funfair ride that drops him 200 feet, and he's like, I hate you, I hate height. And you're kind of like, I like her because she's being mean to him. Um, and then, you know, there's the, the family drama stuff, which is actually quite well handled and deals with some interesting little ideas. This is kind of, it's lo-fi. There are some moments that are deliberately going to make audiences uncomfortable, but they're not done in a prurient way. They just raise these questions and say, well, you've got to deal with how your own emotional response works. Right, right. Um, It's not a major film at any level, but it is really, really interesting. Um, And, uh, you know, it, it... the central, the, the main cast, uh, the main couple, Geth and Anthony is the man, and uh, Frederica Dahl Hansen, who is this, you know, up and coming actress. She's already won several awards. She's actually 19, so when you see her boobs, it's not as disturbing, and actually means the film can get released in an unrated cut. <laughs> um, you know, 
Uh, it, she's really, really phenomenally strong in this, and she's kind of the reason why you will stay more emotionally invested when you've got a central character that is, is you know, raises a lot of questions and, and makes you feel uncomfortable. And it comes to a kind of a really nice resolution that actually you'll you, you'll live well with, mm. and it won't make you feel icky at the end. Considering it's you know that <laughs> this will get you you know do, their relationship will get you arrested in most states of the union, um, and it, you know it, I think this is in that way it's more challenging for American audiences than it's going to be for a lot of other international audiences. But I think that's an interesting part of this. You know, I'm going to go off topic here, sort of for a minute, for that just reminds me of. When I was 17 years old at a religious youth con- conference, yes, I was not there for the religion. I was there because if you've ever been to a I religious go, let me get youth, a drink. If you've ever been to a religious youth conference, you know, there's Is not, it like band camp? Not of a lot. Yes, it's like band camp. Yeah. Exactly. There's a lot of fucking and there's a lot of like people getting stoned and like nitrous oxide and what have you. It's a lot of fun. And uh, the, the one I was going to in question was Quaker, which for the East Coast is even worse, <laughs> probably, than like anyone else you can imagine for that sort of thing. But uh, 17 years old and the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life basically let me know in no uncertain terms that she was going to have me and that I was her pick and I should be honored by this. You're mine now. And I was totally into it. And I, like, you know, was kind of like... I, you know, I was young enough still that I was like, okay. So I was like kissing her, but not like for trying to push her into the bedroom. And uh, a friend of mine's like, you can I talk to you for a minute? I was like, yeah, what's the problem? It's like, dude, that girl's 14 years old. It's like, I realize she's only three years younger than you, but you're legal now pretty much. And she is not. Mm. And I think that you should rethink this scenario. And I was like, you're right. This would be wrong, regardless of anything else. I'm literally about to be 18. I cannot have sex with this girl. So basically did my best to explain to her what was going on, which is an awkward conversation at best. And she's like, no, I'm not having that. I understand your concern, but I'm still a virgin and I've had my eye on you for a while. And you are going to be the man who takes my virginity if I have to wait. And I was like, well, if you're 18 and still want me to do it, we'll do it. Sure enough, she waited till she was 18 and called me up and said, I'm 18 now. I got my ID and everything. I have waited for you. Let's do this. And I took her up on it. Yay! (laughs) And unlike the emphasis on took her. Unlike on some other experiences I had taking virginity, this one was actually pretty good. The other experiences, not so much. Everyone's like, oh, you got to take a virgin. No, generally speaking, it's a horrible, horrible experience. Yep. That was the exception to the rule. Aw. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I know. Moving yeah. on. Look at look at me humble bragging over here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, oh, Don Juan. Oh, it's awful. You don't want to do that. Which other cat's going to about to drink your beer? That's... This, <laughs> this <laughs> is the most disturbing reenactment of the adventures of Casanova I've ever privy to. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to what I, is certainly for me my pick of the week, which is uh, the Stanley Kubrick masterpiece collection. Um, Love him or hate him, Kubrick has had a profound effect on the history of cinema and has made some of the greatest and some of the most reviled films, Yep, depending on who you are, uh, in cinema. Now, there's been collections before. There's even been a Blu-ray collection before. This is kind of the defining one at this point. It's one of the big old wide sets with a giant hardback book and art prints in it and signed notes from the director who must have written before he died because he's dead now and this is, came out after the dead fact. Now. Hey, I'm dead now. Who's What's this guy selling? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Warner Brothers 
you know, I mean, I wouldn't even go so far as to call it double dipping. This th- apparently these are some of these are new uh, transfers of these films. But what you're going to get here is uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut, uh, the the 2011 Blu-ray masterings of Lolita and Barry Lyndon, and the 2011 40th anniversary Blu-ray Blu-ray mastering remastering of A Clockwork Orange. Uh, also is included as the 2009 45th anniversary Blu-ray mastering of Doctor Strangelove. Uh, and exclusive to this set is a bonus disc with three documentaries never before released in the United States. Um, yeah, this is pretty good stuff. It's 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 everything bar the super early stuff, really. Um, now, the only thing I have not watched in here is Lolita. I still have not sat down with Lolita. 152 minutes. I'm sure it's a masterpiece with James Mason, Shelley Winters, Peter Sellers. Just it, never it got around to it. it. It is disturbingly long. Yeah, it, uh, it feels. Yeah, well, the, the first, Kubrick, the, the Kubrick's first not bit, known for short films. Eh, no, that really is kind of like, oh god, is this is this ever going to end? Yeah, but you know, so I don't have much to say about that yet at this point, except that hey, it's in here. Yeah, but uh, Doctor Strangelove, if you've not, if seriously, if you've not watched Doctor Strangelove, what the fuck? You're a film buff, you haven't watched that, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It's really kind of a masterpiece of political comedy, you know. Um, there's so many iconic moments in this. You just you owe it to yourself to sit down and seriously watch this one. Um, we were talking before about 2001 A Space Odyssey. I do think it's one of those films that starts to fall apart after repeat watching in terms of like it's an immediate experience film, but I think you'll never have it again after the first one. No. It's just that, that energy from it. And especially considering we've seen so much since then. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, the awe factor is a little bit on the awful side now. (laughs) (laughs) Just, it's dull. Yeah. And I, I much prefer the original version of, Solar- of Solaris than, in fact, the, uh, the second version of Solaris. I, I prefer which I think, both uh, of those as well over yeah, 2001. Like, this is, no question, a beautifully shot film. Oh, yeah. Still, like, in, in terms of cinematography, in terms of, like, uh, score, like, a gorgeous movie. Kubrick was, was a great visual director. Uh, I, I'm not so convinced that he had chops as a storyteller. I mean, it depended on who was uh, writing his scripts, but yeah. um, it depends on the film. 2001, a weaker example of that, where it's it's the ultimate example of that side of Kubrick, where visually, yes, he's doing a lot of stuff no one had ever seen before. This is the film that influenced Star Wars probably more than anything thing else at the time. Um, just he created a new sort of visual language for science fiction with this film. you you got to give it its props for its place in history, but... It doesn't really. It hasn't aged terribly well in terms of being enjoyable to watch. Yeah. Um, I can't say that for Clockwork Orange, which came out in 1971 and is still freaking out teenagers to this day. I, I, and it's the you know probably his best complete film, mm. and it's the one that Kubrick uh, you know tried to buy up every single print so it couldn't be seen. It's like. Are you just being deliberately contrarian? Well, he did have Asperger's syndrome, so I mean, I I know that I'm not trying to talk st- shit about that. I'm just saying he was very introspective. He was very like self 
recriminatory, recriminatory. He was very, when he decided to do something, he was hyper obsessive about getting every last bit of it done. Is that Asperger's or was he just kind of a dick? Well, I mean, obviously. There, there, were, there were a lot of stories from the, but, the, the shooting of The Shining that basically just go, he was kind of a dick well, and I'm, just disregarded. I'm not uh, disregarding the fact that he was indeed kind of a dick. dick. Uh, but uh, in terms of like the way he was obsessive, I would say that may have been an aspect of his syndrome. Hard to say for sure. Yeah. Right. But um, regardless, A Clockwork Orange is one of his masterpieces. I Mainly think, because he no gets question. out of the way and lets Malcolm McDowell chew the fucking scenery for, <laughs> for, for two hours. Just phenomenally made movie. Great script. Malcolm McDowell is so wonderful in this movie. It's dystopian sci-fi at its absolute weirdest. Oh, my droogies. <laughs> if you have not seen this film... You like if you always wondered like when you go to a convention and why all those people are wandering around in weird white suits with bowler hats and strange cop pieces. That's, this is why. Ch- the Simpsons has influence. referenced it twice for yeah. God's sake. Such a huge uh, global impl- in many ways. I think kind of uh, culturally his most significant oh, yeah. film, and therefore the one he was most ashamed of because that's what he was like. Yeah. Um, uh, um, now next up is Barry London, nineteen seventy-five, that I had never seen before last week, and I got to admit I really liked it. I was always a little scared of it because I was like, oh. It's uh, people said ah, it's a period piece. It's super long. It's over three hours long. It's like eh. and I was like okay. Well, I still should watch it because I had watched. I had also read a lot of equally very strong stuff about it, and I fall down on the side of really loving it. I thought this movie, which was could have been called like a you know a, a rake in Ireland or something like that, because this guy is kind of a he's a selfish little self-absorbed prick yeah. making his way through life by taking advantage of people and lying to people and having sex with as many people as he can. I mean, he's completely a narcissist. There's no hero in this story at all, but it's a fascinating little tale, tale that's well told by Kubrick. Hey, hey, well, you can't call it little. It's three hours. Well, it's three hours, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I've always been in the... Uh, a, I don't like Ryan O'Neill. I think O'Neill is, uh, was one of the most overrated actors. I think this is his one truly great performance. Yeah, and, and most of it was kind of like a... a designed as a, a an experiment in set dressing and photography because, uh, you know, it's all shot using the ambient light on the set. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is, is really fascinating to observe, but I'm not sure it... it I, I still, to this day, do not feel that it required three hours I think Kubrick is the, is the classic example uh, of a director and I, I think it's why the stu- you know, he's partially why the studio system swung so, so far back and producers now have so much influence is because you have somebody like Kubrick who disappears off over the horizon says I'm going to hand in a three hour cut and you better damn well release it yeah. uh, and it doesn't make any money and, and they're like, people are shocked. It's like, well, you did a three-hour cut. I mean, well, what did you expect the, people like, to do? Go much and see it in droves? bigger studio control and much bigger producer control was directly a result of both Kubrick and of, uh, uh, what was it, Heaven's Gate? Guy. Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Which, there is a weird attempt. Michael Cimino. Yeah, Cimino, who, who took down a studio. And there's this weird attempt now to try and say that Oh no, Heaven's Gate actually go- No, it's still unendurably long. I mean, they're, and they're, yeah, I'm always reminded of something Spielberg said, which somebody remind, needs to remind him what he fucking said, which was you you know you make a film that's less than ninety minutes, audiences don't feel they got their money's worth. You get to hundred minutes, they're like, yeah, okay, you know that's good. Hundred and ten, they're going to start looking at their watch. Hundred and twenty. They're really looking at watch. You reach two and a half hours, and you better have made Lawrence of Arabia. I, I, and I, I, you know, I think Kubrick. Nobody had the. Nobody was able to tell him. You, do you need this? 
I, I does t- this need to go on for quite as long as it does? I tend to agree with Spielberg on that. I mean, I don't think necessarily it has to be Lawrence of Arabia, but you better have goddamn well made a film that's really, really enjoyable to sit through. That justifies the time. It justifies the time. I mean, I'm sorry, Terrence Malick, but you need to sit down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired of you constantly pushing us with your, like, giant... Uh, it's about the way you feel epics. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> but Barry Lyndon, Lyndon is a straight story, at least. I'm like, okay, it's, there's no hero, but I enjoyed it for what it was. Next ne- up is what is arguably the greatest horror film ever made, although not what Stan, Stephen King wouldn't agree with that. Mm. And that's Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. I, I think this is like right up to this and The Exorcist are like neck and neck for best horror movie of all time. It's it's great, but again, there's kind of like some things about it I think aren't <sighs> really. Yeah, the I mean, shining? I, I, I get there's moments where you just go, yeah, you've done something because it's a really cool visual. Uh-huh. I'm not sure it adds much, but you're... like things like the the elevator full of blood, it looks awesome. But I'm like, eh? you know. It, <laughs> Well, but I think when you're dealing with horror and this kind of horror, like ghost horror, like that's part of the that's part of the what you're creating is having things that are entirely visual like that. that yeah, entirely I, I, for aesthetic. For me, I, you know, there are many great things about this film, but then there were also some things that are, I think, a little glacial about it and don't quite work for me. I mean, again, I think it's a, it's a masterclass of him as a visualist. Uh, I think he's one of these directors I think actors kind of get past and they <laughs> if they can get a performance in there then it's you know and the, you know Jack Nicholson is phenomenal in this I mean this is oh, one, yeah. this is one of his truly great performances one of his I think because he was one of the people who could actually push past Kubrick and get something decent at whereas if you weren't a particularly strong actor Kirdulay in in 2001 you're you're buried yeah, you end up not, completely. Yeah, yeah, you have you have to make your own way, and I think the uh, this is, you know, Shelley Duvall is not that great. Scatman Crothers is is great, and yeah. um, needed more Scatman Crothers. Yeah, um, and, and uh, the young Danny Lloyd is terrific as the the Red Rum Red Rum, and, I, and uh, uh, Barry Nelson is the. Uh, 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 the the barking uh, as the the bartender right who is just uh, it's a great piece of casting oh, no. to me this is a I a hard pressed to think of a more perfect horror film than this movie I really I think this I, is I the, think I, I will always put greatest... Exorcist ahead of it because I think there are these moments where I'm just like I, I was more cerebrally engaged than I was uh, viscerally engaged and for me I need to have that visceral connection as a horror film mm, okay fair enough uh, now I probably have that same type of problem with. Kubrick's war film Full Metal Jacket which I think is a very really great movie but there are points he wants me to become engaged in a sort of way that's purely based on aesthetics when I was actually kind of following the story and I'm kind of more interested in that which is why I think the first half of Full Metal Jacket works is much stronger than the second half the first half being hey it's all these guys in basic training and the dude Vincent D'Onofrio who goes batshit crazy great story defining story for this type of film has been copied endlessly since by other films um second half okay now they're at war goes okay well we're just kind of kind of apocalypse now and from here well, on and it's it, it's really important to remember nobody even talks about the second half of this film sure it is completely ignored and i think you know he decided because he didn't like traveling 
Uh, and this is the first time where that really reinforces himself because he tries to build Vietnam uh, on the Isle of Dogs in London and it looks like the Isle of Dogs in London with some palm trees. It's, the set dressing is not particularly effective at all. It feels awkward and forced. Um, uh, you know, D'Onofrio is great in this. Matthew Modine in one of his, you know, one of his best performances before he disappeared into obscurity. Yeah, he really did just kind of yeah, say you know, fuck it. <laughs> uh, Arlene, Arlie Ermey in his, the role that made the rest of his career what it was. Yeah. Like, basically, if he wasn't being cast as this role in something else, he wasn't going to get cast. Yeah. <laughs> this, this was the beginning and possibly should have been the end of his, his career. I mean, you know, when this came out, it was up against Platoon. Um... And it, you know, you look at it the two side by side. Um, Platoon is in some places is pretty rough and ready. I mean, it's, this yeah. is not Oliver Stone, the director that he became by any stretch of the imagination. No, I, Platoon is, but Platoon is a much better film. Platoon is probably Stone's best film, and I think it's easily a better film than Full Metal Jacket, if in no other, no different no other way than it's so well thought out through the whole thing. It's a complete film. It knows what it is. Full Metal Jacket has moments of brilliance that outshine anything in Platoon, but taken as a whole, it's not anywhere near as good as no. Platoon. No. But that could be said of a lot of Kubrick stuff, too. Yeah. Like, these moments of brilliance that blow you away and then the rest of the... And, but where... How do they fit together? Certainly never more true than with his eyes wide shut. Oh, uh, the God. Much advertised they, could, they could have... Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman flick where you see base, both, basically both of them naked and having kinky sex. Um, one of the most boring, overhyped movies I've ever seen in my entire life. The, the, this set would have been hugely improved by by replacing this disc with the killers. Yeah. yeah. Why wasn't the killers in this? And maybe some rights issues. That's the only thing I can think that, That's a great film. Yeah. I or even, uh, what's the Kirk Douglas one? Um uh, oh, uh, early World War One by by Kubrick. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Paths of Glory. Glory, terrific Kubrick film. Which arguably, I, I, I think uh, those two, you, for me, uh, you know, I mean, not included because we were just solely talking about them on this set. <laughs> as actual films, as complete works, I think those are probably his strongest. Because after that, he kind of gets so obsessed with what he can do with the technology, right? And uh, and and the nature of making films, and you know, later as they just basically go, "Hey, you can go as long as you want." Um, so those are efficient, moving. The performance is great. As complete films, I think they're 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 superior. They're not as visually out there. They're not as, as pioneering. Well, but they're not in the set. So. Yeah, they're not in the set. <laughs> but yeah, you know, eyes wide shut. Fuck me. I mean, this oh, is this Jesus. is this is a frisbee of a I film. I still can't believe people defend this movie to this day. Uh, they're, they're and they're wrong. Go, they are absolutely. And wrong. there's. Endless. I mean, at least once a year, I see like an 18-page essay coming out, either deriding it still, going like, no, I'm sorry, this is shit, or doing the opposite and defending it or de- arguing about various aspects, like how much of this was actually Spielberg, who came in and finished it, and does it make a difference that it was that? Or did did Kubrick do most of his great work in post-production or none of it? I mean, just if nothing else, it's become a talking point for the technique of Kubrick because I think this film's more derided than not and people want to know who to blame. Yeah. And so it's become this entry point to what was the technique of Kubrick between production and post-production. And this was also a horribly plagued uh, production. Yeah. Actors dropped in and dropped out. So this kind of like half performances. Uh, Nicole Kidman's uh, whole part is massively curtailed. Uh, because they had they they recast and they couldn't get her they recast some other parts and they couldn't get her back to reshoot some stuff so and, and she's actually the best thing here 
by yeah. far. I mean, you you see why she, um, you know, before before the appalling birth was considered to be a, a you know fine actress. And, True, and you know she's great in this. She's the only thing that's watchable in it. She's only in about twenty minutes. Yeah, you know, it, it, you're kind of misled by the advertising it's mostly just tom cruise at that point in his career when he was trying to convince people that he had real real kind of deep chops not just jerry Maguire chops but you know could really handle something like this i mean this is where what leads to some like um uh, open your eyes um, yeah terrible film um <laughs> you know and it's like no this isn't what you do you you do big popcorn sh- um, crap uh, uh you cannot carry this yeah it's it's a it's a terrible combination of director and actor at a point in their career where neither of them should be working with each other nope nope now this uh, most of the discs in here come with you know a, a shit ton of bonus features about <laughs> the films in question it's ridiculous but as mentioned before there were uh several things that were uh, bonus discs in here that were not included in previous things uh there's stanley kubrick a life in pictures which is the 2001 documentary there's oh lucky malcolm uh which is a, a look at the life and career feature length life and career of malcolm mcdowell there's kubrick remembered another feature length documentary uh in high definition taking a look you know back at kubrick's work with people who knew him uh stanley kubrick in focus a 30 minute uh piece of, of with uh Basically, appreciation of directors and collaborators looking at his films in chronological release order. There's Once Upon a Time, A Clockwork Orange, a UK documentary, uh, obviously about A Clockwork Orange. And then, as I mentioned before as well, 78-page hardcover book, uh, a, 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 basically a, a art piece called A Reproduction of a Christian Kubrick Portrait of Her Husband. And then a brief essay by Kubrick remembered producer and director Gary Kamar on the making of his documentary. Uh, the only thing that I feel like is missing here, and I'm going to double check here, make sure it's not in fact here. Yes, it is not here. Is the documentary. Uh, uh, oh, no, is that it? Yes, it is there. I'm sorry. It's the documentary, The Making of the Shining, which is totally fucking awesome. The 34 minute documentary filmed by Kubrick's daughter that does not shy away from showing what a douchebag Stanley Kubrick is mm-hmm. and or was and like Shelley Duvall who's basically snorting coke off her fa- or hand at every any chance she gets you know when doesn't realize the camera's on her Jack Nicholson rolling his eyes a lot at people <laughs> just one of the most telling like how did this ever get released one of my favorite stories about the making of the shining is the one where they they they're filming the scene where uh Jack Nicholson buries the axe in Scatman Crothers' uh, right. uh, chest. And Crothers, is, by this point, is is of advanced age. I mean, he's no spring chicken. And they keep shooting this and shooting it and shooting it. And he's just basically got a plank uh, underneath his parker. And they just hit, and Kirby just goes, I don't like that. Hit him again. I don't like that. Hit him again. And finally, Nicholson go, it, like loses his shit and turns to Kubrick and goes, this guy is old and you're making me hit him in the chest with a fucking axe it doesn't matter if like you know he's got a plank there there's absorbing this is still really if you make me do this one more time i'm burying this axe in your chest and apparently it was the only time anybody got an emotional reaction out of kubrick because kubrick suddenly blanched and just goes okay i think we're good for the day and like yeah it was the only time somebody really stood up to him and like that was like no no done with it you know what if if the people who made this set are out there listening because you know you never know they may well be um do this kind of thing for sam fuller 
Agreed. I, you know, a real or, uh, monster Casavetes. Oh, yeah. I'd be really interested to see a Casavetes yeah. set. Two, two directors who I think made much more complete films. Um, I mean, I, I don't think even... People, you know, if you want to talk about masters of American cinema, I think, I think having those out there, because I think, you know, it's amazing how many people have, have heard of Casavetes, but haven't seen that much, and haven't even right. seen, like, the major stuff. Like I don't even know if I'm... Killing as, a Chinese bookie. I'm not even sure. It's, I can't even say I'm as big a fan of any given film by those two directors as I am of several of the films on this set, but I think that they are at the very least equally worth exploring to oh, Kubrick, who's a much wider known name. Uh, no, I mean, for me, Fuller, I would put, you know, Steel Helmet or you know, up against pretty much anything. And as, as you know, their war commentaries, Big Red One knocks Full Metal Jacket into a, into a well, cocked hat. No, then, no, you're right there. No question. That could be an interesting podcast one day. It's like, you know, compare and contrast, you know, comparable Kubrick and Fuller films and see, <laughs> and see where we come down on that because I'm probably going to come down with on Fuller a lot of the time. Probably a lot of the time. Yeah. But uh, that's not this podcast because we have to go to our last title which is our giveaway. Which and, I'm going to be difficult and say is my, my pick of the week. Okay, fair enough. That you're, is you're allowed to do that. Say, this which is, is the, the Legend of Korra book three or season three. They call it book three. Change. Now, a lot of people had problems with book two, which I'm still a little bit on the baffled side of, because I think you reviewed it with me, and we were both like, I'm sorry, guys, this is really good stuff. Yeah, I don't know if you have a problem with being hypercritical or something, but I have enjoyed the shit out of this season. That being said, season three is even better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so much good stuff going on here. I hear season four is phenomenal. I have not watched any of it yet. Um, but this is... Well, I mean, you you take you're you're obviously even bigger fan than I am since you're giving this the pick of the week. So. Well, I mean, for those of you that are not aware of the the uh, uh, the Avatar series, this is not the James Cameron 3D stuff. Uh, this is set in a world where various races have have developed the ability to manipulate certain elements. So there are Airbenders, uh, Firebenders, Earthbenders, and Waterbenders. Um, the airbenders were basically wiped out deliberately by the firebenders. <laughs> yeah. Their firebenders uh, were a giant bag of dicks. And a, a pivotal plot point of season two was that the airbenders come back. That this is the beginning of their return because... And, and the, not just the airbenders either, but yeah. pretty much everything that Hayao Miyazaki likes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, the, that the line between the spirit world... And the real world, which was dealt with to a certain degree in the first series, Avatar The Last Airbender, this is really being dealt with now in uh, Legend of Korra. Right. In much more depth. Um, the basic idea now is that there are spirit creatures that are appearing, that the airbender, the air nation is, is kind of coming back in, in together, but it's, it, how do you build a nation? Yeah. Um, but it's still really about how the characters deal with their responses. That you have uh, Avatar Korra, who is the only person who can manipulate all the elements. She is trying to come to terms with her position in having changed this world so completely. Uh, you have um, the last remaining airbender, who now is no longer the last remaining airbender, and, must, and now is trying to recreate not just... You know what the the idea of airbending, but what he feels the nation should be, 
Uh, and then you suddenly have a gang of extremely powerful benders who are extremely violent. Have crazy new kind of bending powers, like lava bending. Yes, and, and all a water bender who has no arms and instead has arms made of water that she's bended. which is very unnerving. Very cool. And, and you know this film, this it's, it's go pretty much like when it it's Black Flag. Yeah. Yeah, because Henry Rollins is the head one. And, yeah. like, in my head the whole time, it was like, dude, it's Battle of the Bands with Black Flag yeah. in, in Corvus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you'll start to build up a, a, a new uh, plot of... Uh, in the original series, it was the, uh, the, the, the Fire Nation that was the big bad. This was the menace that was trying to take over the world. Right. Now you're very, very slowly building up that's the Earth Kingdom that could become the threat to everything. And that is beautifully subtly handled because previously they were, you know, you're very emotionally invested in the Earth Kingdom kind of being the peaceful ones, the last bastions against the Fire Nation. Right. And now they are the menace. Well, they've become so entrenched and they've some so insular and they're so they're just normal internal corruption. Yeah. You know, as their democracy has devolved into, you know, an oligarchy. <laughs> uh, and uh, but uh, you know there were kind of elements of that in the original series. This really is where that becomes a menace to civilization. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've been invested in this in this series since episode one of season one uh, of the original Avatar. You know, I'm I, I don't like Korra as a character quite as much as I liked Aang, um, and I, I still have a bit of an emotional connection more to that. But they start bringing stuff back in from from that. This is, they, they're, they're, the Agreed. strands get deeper and deeper. One of the things I really like about Korra as a character is that there's that point that any other show would have gone, we're still going to make who's she going to end up with the central conceit. Yeah. And this show has no interest in that at all. No. It's like, yeah, she was younger. She was worried about who likes her. Now there's bigger problems. And she's like, I don't have time for that shit. Yeah. I'll deal with that some other time. This is about the, the maturation process of, of, of the Avatar and her dealing with the fact that life is not going to be... You know, she's, she's done major things and they have changed the world and she is going to have to deal with this. Book four, when that lands, this is going to be about a character dealing with, with she no longer can be a teenager. Right. Things happen in this that you go... that, that ha- You know, seasons one and, uh, one and two... Particularly season one, because that was they thought they were only going to do one season, and there was such huge fan response. It, you know, it wraps up very neatly. Season two wraps up fairly neatly. This is the same kind of payoff that you got at the end of season two of Avatar: The Last Airbender, where you go, "Holy shit, the stakes have been raised." Well, that's the this thing. Is, this, this is a this is a political drama. This is Game of Thrones. For ten-year-olds, it's, it's, it really is. It is upping the stakes considerably. It's making it like more than the previous two seasons. Definitely, it's the when we get towards the end, it's a lot more frightening. Everyone is in a lot more danger. Things look a lot worse than they did before, and they're a lot more horrifying to watch play out. Yeah, um, it's just scarier yeah. along the way than the previous seasons. Where I will say two had the strength of being like significantly opening wide the world and the options of what this series could do you know we're not limited to the choices of the first series now there's a bunch of other thing ways this could go this is both taking advantage of that and being grounded back in the well 
what's going on politically in this world and the power struggle that made the first series so enthralling and interesting. There's a lot of great stuff going on here. Henry Rollins really does knock it out of the park oh, as yeah. the, the villain who they do not keep as a one-dimensional villain who honestly thinks he's doing the right thing for the world that he lives in. He's a fanatic. But a well-spoken one <laughs> and a badass to watch do his thing. The fight sequences in this are really cool. So beautifully choreographed. Oh, yeah. So beautifully put together. Yeah. Hong Kong films wish they still had this level of like quality in their cho- choreography. I mean, I think pretty much ever since uh, the guy who was the guy who did uh, The Matrix. Uh, oh. He's uh, like done a shit ton. Like he did the Drunken Master films. Oh. No, um, Lao Car. Lao Kei. Wow. Ping, yes, something I can't believe Wu I Ping? can't remember something like that. Yep. But uh, ever since he pretty much retired from film, nobody else has is carrying that because it's the last film I saw with really, really, really stunning choreography that was actually filmed in Hong Kong was uh, the Grand Master, which unfortunately wasn't the greatest movie of all time, but great choreography. Yay. Other than that, tons of martial arts films. Nobody's really trying anything new. They should just watch Korra because yep. they know how to do it. I mean, Especially it, with the metal benders. Holy shit. Oh, the metal bending sequences are super. <laughs> if there's one problem I have with this season, it's I think they may have introduced too many characters, which uh, rather unfortunately means that one of my favorite characters, Bolin, really, who was so good in totally season Totally short-shrifted. Two, is, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he's a great character. They need to bring him back because he's the comic relief. There is also... I will warn you, if you are a fan of the original, the original uh, Last Airbender, there is a moment where you will see an object, and if you don't cry, you're a broken human being. <laughs> it, like, it, it, it's, you know, because they very subtly said, well, what's happened to a whole bunch of characters? There is a moment where you'll go, oh, yeah, no, time has passed. Yeah. Things have happened, and there's something, you will see one thing, and you'll be like, oh, no. And that's, that's fucking harsh. That was a harsh moment. That was a harsh moment. Well, uh, but uh, all in all, you know, this is a series that, you know, the fact that Nickelodeon initially actually took episodes 9, nine through 13 and said, we're going to put them online because we are confused by what this show is. Even though we've been running it for six, for six seasons, Baffling. we're terrified of it. I, I don't understand what's happening at Nickelodeon. And much has been written about and said about this. Like, guys, why are you torpedoing one of your own strongest products? Yeah. Why, why are you doing this? No one's, it's not like community where you're like, okay, clearly like as hard, they tried hard, they got behind it as much as they could. And still the ratings were never top of the line, strong niche audience, but not enough for like prime time. This is a cable network, <laughs> you yeah. know, and this is their highest reviewed show. Probably most uh, like qual like, you know, in terms of like critics going, this is brilliant. This is that show. They've got nothing else like this. No. It's their opportunity to open wide an entirely new market of, of that they can, you know, do. I mean, they've got Americans responding to basically anime for all extents and purposes. Yeah. D- dude, what are you doing? Yeah. Take advantage of that. And somebody went, nah, people don't get it. This isn't for little kids. Let's just throw it on the internet. Well, it's it's not. It doesn't serve as a good lead in for the next season, the next episode for reruns of Hannah Montana. Uh, this is, you know, I, I love this show because it, you know, kids responded to it so strongly because of all its narrative strengths. Yeah. Because it said, you know what? You are going to have to hang in for three seasons to get payoff. And even then, we're not necessarily going to give you payoff on some stuff. 
we're not going to solve everything neatly. Bad stuff happens to characters in in, in the same way, and uh, you know, that with How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah. The end of How to Train Your Dragon is not clean. It's not easy, no. and this this has those same chops of saying. You know what? You need to buy into the world. You need to accept how the world works. We will expand it. We will explain it. We will evolve it over time. Um, and they've built such a complete cosmos now that they can do tectonic changes like they, like they did at the end of season two. Yeah, yeah. And you will still be 100% okay with it. And you know, my only hope now is that you know we have... A different avatar once they've finished season four that we'd go somewhere else. I'd like to see them deal with one of the earlier avatars. I think that would be great now because yeah. I think they've moved it as far forward as it can go without yeah. becoming kind of avatar in space. I'd rather go back. Yeah, we yeah. don't need we don't need this doing a Jason X. We we need a you know a historic avatar. avatar I think in that would space. be great. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, this is a series that has <laughs> delivered now in both. Last Airbender and Legend of Korra, it's delivered consistently for six seasons, and there is virtually nothing on television that has done that. That's why I'm excited that we're getting to give away a DVD set of this to people. Here's what you have to do to win it. Richard? Our, okay. Our, our, our very own Vanna White over here? Uh, you need to follow us at, uh, uh, at one of us net on Twitter. That is correct. Um, and I want you to tweet to us with using the hashtag avatar giveaway oh what will they do question 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 okay if they were to make another live action version oh no let's what live action version if there was some terrible punishment you could deliver to M. Night Shyamalan no (laughs) okay I got it uh yeah you get to go to the studio and reboot the Avatar film franchise, which director would you give it to? Oh, nice. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, like I, I said... I don't even know. Usually a question like that I'd know immediately. I don't. I'd have follow, to think about Follow that. us uh, at, um, at one of us now on Twitter, hashtag Avatar Giveaway. Which director would you give an Avatar The Last Airbender film to? That's awesome. Okay, well, there's your chance to win. Thank you so much for joining me again, Richard. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. To our audience for tuning in. We really appreciate it. We'll be back next week, maybe a little late in the week once again. The reason this even is coming out so late, and that one as well, it's Austin Film Critics Association voting period, so I'm getting overloaded with stuff to watch right now. Like, I have a stack of stuff. I've watched three quarters of it and still have more to go. So everything's a little delayed. My apologies for that. But... We are going to, we promise there'll be a digital noise every week, including next week. So, uh, thank you for tuning in. Like I said, definitely think about being, com- about becoming a subscriber because our brand or new buying show. buying one for a friend. Uh, or, or what? Buying one for a friend for Christmas. What? A subscription? A subscription. Good idea. Because yeah. they can get the Breakfast Pub every morning, uh, every Monday morning and listen to all the week's news and entertainment delivered in our traditional drunken acerbic way. But that's it for this week. Uh, Richard, once again, thank you. And uh, as I usually say, no release uh, is too big. No release is too small. From uh, kittens to cats, we review them all. Madeline Kahn, that's who I was thinking was dead. Madeline Kahn is Madeline dead. Madeline Kahn is dead. You scared me for a minute. I had to look it up on Wikipedia. It's like, Bernadette Peters is not dead, you motherfucker. Yeah. Sorry about, sorry about that, Bernadette. <laughs>